We're trying something new with our audio cast of the program Being Mortal, which aired on February 10th and is available for online viewing anytime at frontline.org. It's been adapted just for audio by radio producers John Bewin and Lou Olkowski and told first person by producer-director Tom Jennings. Let us know what you think of this podcast by using the hashtag FrontlinePBS on Facebook and Twitter or email us at frontline at pbs.org. I'm Tom Jennings, a producer for Frontline. For the past two years, I've worked with a surgeon and writer, Atul Gawande, on a film inspired by his book, Being Mortal. It explores how people, patients, and doctors deal with aging and dying. I was especially interested in his belief that doctors, with the best of intentions, can inflict suffering at the end of life. Therapies intended to help might actually hasten death and hospitalizations for crises are often a last, desperate attempt to hold on. Atul saw many patients get checked into the hospital and never leave, never having a chance to say their goodbyes. How can we have good days to the end? We didn't focus on that enough. What was most striking, Atul Gawande implicated himself. He was part of the problem. He wanted to do better. Here was a case which I could unpack enough to understand why do we always go off the rails. One thing you should know, I've known Atul since childhood. We both grew up in Athens, Ohio, went to high school together. I went into journalism, he became a surgeon and a writer. In medicine, your first fear as a doctor is that you're supposed to be able to fix a problem, and our anxieties include wanting to seem competent, and to us, competent means I can fix this. In fact, there's often a kind of implicit promise, I'm gonna be able to fix this. I'm gonna certainly give you the best shot you can have. Nobody could have given you a better shot. And then when things aren't working, Part of your anxiety is, was there something I missed? Was there anything else I could have done? Atul has been a surgeon for more than a decade. When I started out in my training in surgery, you discover that all the stuff you learned about in the books in medical school is really just a tiny little bit of what it means to be good at doing our jobs. It's not just about how smart you are anymore as a doctor, it's about how you have to be able to work with teams and how mistakes get made and how you handle them and how you learn. Among the most uncomfortable difficulties was grappling with those cases where we couldn't solve the problem. The two big unfixables are aging and dying. You know, they're not, you can't fix those. Atul got intensely interested in this problem. The fact that so many doctors, himself included, struggle to talk to patients about the end of life. Something about Atul, he writes so personally, using his own life as a lens to look at medicine. My writing has become the way that I can focus in and begin to understand the problems that most confuse me. 
one case in point, it was a piece I wrote called Letting Go about a woman named Sarah Monopoly, whom I helped take care of, who was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer during the ninth month of her pregnancy at the age of 34. This was one of the most difficult circumstances. You have a young woman with a brand new baby. Of course, everybody is fighting for every chance that she's got. She was young, she was enthusiastic, she wants to tackle this. You don't want to be the downer. So you're looking, you're grasping for a straw that says, well, there's something here that's gonna be beneficial. Stage four lung cancer, we know it's not curable, but suppose she's the one that somehow gets cured. Maybe she's the one. And so therefore we should do all these things to her. Having any kind of discussion that would begin to say, look, you probably only have a few months to live. What do we do to make the best of that time without giving up on the options that you have? That was a conversation I wasn't ready to have. I don't think any of us were. Hey there. Dr. Gwanda, how are you? <laughs> how are you? Come on in. Atul decided to visit Sarah's husband, Rich Monopoly. He hadn't talked to him since writing the article Letting Go six years before. Take me back to when she's pregnant, she's doing great. Yep. 39 weeks, your we due date is coming. and That's when Sarah was diagnosed with lung cancer. Her doctor wanted to induce labor so she could get chemotherapy started. The collapsed lung uh, would not allow for a C-section. Uh, it was too dangerous to be opening her up with all that fluid buildup. So Sarah had Vivian basically pushing with one lung. It was so difficult, but she had the baby. You want to be part of that 15% that survives one of the five years. You want to be that part of that, that group so badly. And you say to yourself, why not us? You know, it wasn't about how can we have good days to the end? We didn't focus on that enough. We're trying to stabilize the situation and try to become uh, a little, spend a little bit of time as a family. Yeah. But it, it was just, it was an impossible situation, impossible summer. I mean, it was just yeah. excruciating. When I came on the scene was when she got diagnosed with a second cancer. Thyroid cancer, the kind that a tool specializes in, is treatable. But now he faced a dilemma. He knew there was no point in even trying to remove it. You know, in my mind, what I was thinking was, I wouldn't offer this surgery because the lung cancer is going to take her life. And yet I didn't feel I could say that to you all. I think we started talking about the experimental therapy that you all would like, were hoping to get on for a trial with the lung cancer. And I remember saying something I sort of regret, which was, you know, maybe that experimental therapy will work for the thyroid cancer too. <laughs> I said that, and I know it was complete. Well, you had joined us in, in, our, in our sunny disposition, hoping for the best. I knew, that, I knew it was not gonna, I mean, I, I, in other words, the reason I regret it is because I knew it was a complete lie. I just was wanting something positive to say. I did not know it was an outright lie. <laughs> you could lose your license for that. <laughs> I know. But I, you know, I think I would, I, I don't think I was terribly equipped for having that conversation. 
And maybe you all weren't. I don't think we were. Um, I've thought often about what did that cost us? What did, what did we miss out on? What did we forego by consistently pursuing treatment after treatment after treatment, which made her sicker and sicker and sicker? The very last week of her life, she had brain radiation. She was planned for experimental therapy the following Monday. You woke up and she wasn't doing so well on a Friday. What, what, what happened then? So she woke up and was gasping for air. And I tried to crank the oxygen up. I said, let's max this thing out. Maybe we get a bigger oxygen machine. We were so close to getting to the next potential fix. And she said, I can't do this. I can't do it at home. I'm, I'm too scared. I'm gasping for air and I can't, can't do this. We should have started earlier with the effort to have quality time together. The chemo had made her so weak that she couldn't hold Vivian. It was exhausting. And that was not, that was not a good outcome for the, for the final, final months. It's not where we wanted to be. Looking back, Atul thinks that most of what he and the other doctors did in the last three months of Sarah Monopoly's life only made things worse. The treatments may have even shortened her life. What was interesting to me was how uncomfortable I was and how unable I was to um, deal well with her circumstances. It felt like a revelation and that here was a case which I could unpack enough to understand why do we always go off the rails. Atul set out to see how other doctors handled these kinds of difficult moments in their patients' lives and to see if he could learn to do things differently himself. I work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. They're connected together across one street. Some colleagues there allowed him to observe their delicate interactions with patients facing the hard choices that come at the end of life. One was Lakshmi Nayak. She's a specialist in cancer of the brain. And she has to have these end-of-life discussions with almost all of her patients. You picked a pretty tough field, right? So how many of your patients will you cure or help them have a better life? It's almost always fatal. We have, you know, each of us has an odd patient who survived for 10 years or 15 years. Um, but that's less than 5% of all of the patients that suffer from the most common malignant brain tumor. So yes, um, I, I don't get to tell people, I'm going to cure you. One of Dr. Nyack's most challenging cases at the time was a man named Bill Brooks. He was 46 years old. Bill has uh, brain cancer. That basically, in his case, has led to raised pressure in his head. But he feels really well. Bill's sister had also died of a brain tumor. And that was what he was worried of the most. Look delicious. <laughs> They always look delicious. Everything is good for you. You eat anything. When we first visited Bill at home, he was looking great, practically normal. 
He grilled hot dogs while his wife Mary was getting things ready in the kitchen. Like, you know, we're so lucky. We, we have each other. We have great families. We have great friends. We have great jobs. We live in a beautiful home. But, no, we've been, we've been lucky. And then, you know, all of a sudden, it's like our world was turned upside down. It's a battle. You know, some people say, don't listen to the numbers. And I always say, well, that gives me something to shoot for. That's Bill. You know, if they tell you five years, great. let's go for six, seven, or ten. So, Bill's story from the very beginning has been challenging because when I first saw him, I thought he had five to ten years. That changed. His symptoms started getting more aggressive. The headaches. The headaches, the not being able to lie down. I actually called Mary. I said, we don't have much time. We probably have a few days to a month. And I told her she should take time off work. He started having pressure in his head, and, and we... Okay. So, Dr. Knight gets very, um... She takes it very personally. She takes it very personally when she wants to, has to give us bad news, so she basically just told us to get ready. And, um, so, you know, of course, you have your pity party. Um, and then you kind of, like... Don't give up hope. After that phone call with Mary, Dr. Nyack ordered a series of spinal taps to relieve the pressure on Bill's brain. It worked. The pressure came down, and he felt better. They had new hope. They described it as a miracle, like the cancer was going away. But the disease was still progressing. You started having some pressure. Can I check a few things? Yeah, absolutely. Follow with your eyes. We're with Bill and Mary at a clinic Quiet. visit. They're hopeful, but Dr. Nyack looks concerned. She's using an instrument to gaze into Bill's eyes. What I was looking into your eyes was not the way your pupils reacted, but to see um, what the pressure might be. and. I'm worried that the disease will be growing. Dr. Nyack works closely with her lead nurse, Sandra Ruland. She gently tries to push the conversation forward. I think that it's important for us, even though it would be easy to sort of skip over this today, yeah. that we should talk about if things are not going as we hope to just talk about worst case scenarios a little bit. And then best case scenario too. So, well, best case, obviously, you know. Later, Atul and Dr. Nyack watch video of that appointment on a laptop. What made you jump in to say best case as well as worst case? I think that I'd scared them the first time. Hmm. You're thinking back to when you talked about it yeah. before. And you're worried that you'd lose their confidence if you only talked about the bad side. Yeah, and especially because he had been responding to treatment, it just gives them some hope, as long as you're not giving them unrealistic expectations out of treatment. The shots. What's the third option? There's no third option. There has to be a third option. The nurse, Sandra Ruland. We do things together. We often are finishing each other's sentences. If Dr. Nyack had said, let's talk about worst case scenarios, then I would have said, and we'll talk about best case scenarios. Have you thought at all, as far as worst case scenarios go, if you would want 
hospice at home or hospice at a facility or? Doing at home. When we talked about hospice, I was reading Mary's body language that was sort of saying to me, don't go there. But given all the things that were going wrong, I felt like we had to do that. Have you thought about anything after the MRI? My thought, and Mary's heard me say it a lot, is I want to see the next one to kind of see if it's showing anything or not um, before I start to get worried or so, get too hopeful. <clears throat> It was amazing to see how my colleagues had these conversations and it was teaching me what I might do better for my own patients. It turned out it also taught me how to do better for my dad. He got some bad news back home in Ohio. Athens, Ohio where Atul and I grew up. I went there with him when he visited his mother, Sushila. Three years after his father's death, Atul still had questions for her. Do you remember when dad first started to get pain in his neck? Uh, he had pain in his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, he thought that either playing too much tennis or just muscle. So when the result came, we were in a shock. Everyone in Athens knew Atul's dad, Ram. He was a local doctor, a surgeon like Atul would become. Ram knew how to read an MRI scan. He emailed the images. I opened them up and it's a huge mass and it's concerning. So he called me up and as we're piecing it together over the phone together, we're kind of realizing this is right in the middle of the spinal cord. So the puzzle is, how do you get this out? And, you know, we're two surgeons looking at a mass. It's like two carpenters looking at a house. <laughs> you know, you're not saying, oh, yeah, we can't fix this. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of that conversation, I'm, I'm thinking this could, this, this could be a life-threatening problem. Atul's mom is a physician, too. Three doctors, and they struggled to talk about the medical reality in front of them, that Ram would probably die from this tumor. Talking with anyone near the end of life about their decisions is so difficult that there are now physicians who specialize in the process. They're called palliative care doctors, people like Kathy Salvaggi, who works at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Salvaggi says there's an essential question that she asks terminally ill patients. What do they understand about their disease? Because oftentimes what we say as physicians is not what the patient hears. And if there are things that you want to do, let's think about what they are and can we get them accomplished. You know, people have priorities besides just living longer. Yes. You've got to ask what those priorities are. Yes. You've got to tune the treatment to those priorities. Exactly. And if we don't ask, and if we don't have these discussions, we don't know. Paul, I'm Dr. Salvaggi. I'm Kathy. Dr. Salvaggi works with doctors throughout the hospital to help with their hardest patient conversations. So, how are you feeling? Um, I'm a little better than I was when I first came in the other day. Amen was one of those doctors. He's an oncologist. He'd been caring for a patient named Norma Babineau for two years. 
but he hadn't succeeded in talking with her about the end of her life. Let me start by, by giving you both an overview of where we're at now, because the cancer has, has developed a more aggressive course to it. Norma's in her hospital bed. Dr. Elfiki talks with her and her husband, Paul, with Dr. Selvaggi there to back him up. This is where the tough discussions uh, come up. Uh, the disease, we knew, has been acting up. Right now, in this state, where treatment would hurt you more than help you, that's just a fact. And you would not get the benefit uh, of it. Is there a time thing, a timeline, or...? We could be talking about three to four months. We can be longer. It can certainly be shorter if, it, if the pace picks up. After a pause, Norma raises the possibility of a miracle. There's miracles are gonna happen in between. To, it, it's a question you had to ask, and I don't want you to dwell on that. If I were gonna bet on somebody doing better, it would be, I would be betting on you mm -hmm. to do better than that timeline. Dr. Silvaggi speaks up. Our goal is, for whatever time is left, is to make it the best quality that we can. But I need to take the baby to Disney. Norma had hoped to take her grandchild to Disney World for Christmas. We gotta find the right medicine to give me a bed house where I can take my trips. Afterwards, Atul and Dr. Elfiki talk about the experience with Norma. So the really hard part I find in these situations is, you know it'll come to this point, when do you help them understand that. What, what's going through your mind, though? What does it feel like to you? That I wish I could do better. Mm. Right. It still feels like a little bit of a failure for us, doesn't it? it it's very much a failure. Yeah. Right. And it's hard. Um, but Even then, though you knew from the beginning, you weren't going to be able to, you, you weren't curing this problem. Right. It's just a fight mentality that perhaps goes back to training in med school and just the way yeah. we are wired and we're not trained for yeah, that other mode. That's where we have to take our cues, because I think... Palliative care doctors like Kathy Selvaggi have special training, and they're teaching other doctors there might be a better way. You know, and Here's Selvaggi again, talking with Norma. I think it's hard to hear sometimes the timeline, but I think it's also important to have a sense, because if there are things that you want to say or do or people that you want to see, it helps you define that time a little better. I think she knew that she was getting sicker and weaker. One of the goals was to try to get her home right. with hospice services, but the medications and the things that we're requiring, it's just not going to happen. Forget it's not Disney World. We're, we're not even knowing whether we can leave the hospital. Exactly. So we didn't do that before last Monday. It feels really late in the game, you know? Um, it does feel a little bit late in the game. We. You know, we're all sort of taught that in order to make a difference in our patients' lives, we have to be doing something. We have to be operating, we have to be giving them a medication, we have to be radiating, we have to be giving chemotherapy. In some ways, I think the medicine is the easy part. It's all of this other stuff that's much harder to deal with. How are you? Two days later, Dr. Selvaggi goes to see Norma again. I wanted to talk with you about, um, I know the other day, Norma, we talked about um, where to go from here. You may need more and more IV or intravenous medications to control your symptoms, and I'm worried that we're not going to be able to do that at home. What do you think about that? 
I think it's coming close, Norma says. Are you, when you say coming close, that we're coming near the end? Yeah. I worry about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll keep you here and we'll take care of you here. Okay. See you a little later, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, why don't I clean this out for you? Dr. Selvaggi had helped Norma understand that she was dying. Still, Norma had little time to say her goodbyes. She died 10 days later. These are really important conversations that should not be waiting the last week of someone's life. Between Patients, families, doctors, other healthcare providers involved in the care of that patient. There's no natural time to have these conversations, except when a crisis comes, and that's too late. That was an important realization for Atul. He began working to have the conversation sooner with his patients. And during a visit with his parents in Boston, he decided to have the talk with his father. My dad and my mom and I had sat in my living room and I had the conversation, which was, what are the fears that you have? What are the goals that you have? And you know, he cried and my mom cried and I cried. He wanted to be able to be social. He did not um, want a situation where if you're quadriplegic, you could end up on a ventilator. You know, he said, let me die if that should happen. Atul hadn't known his father felt that way. But his dad's priorities became the family's guideposts. They came from who Ram Gawande was as a person, who he had always been. My dad came from a little farming village in the middle of India, you know, thatched mud huts, uh, no running water, a village of about 5,000 people. His father had 13 children. His mother died from malaria when he was about 10. That was when he decided he wanted to be a doctor. Ram went to medical school in India. In the 1960s, he was offered a job at a hospital in New York City where he trained to be a surgeon. He met my mom and married her, and they moved to Athens, Ohio to set up their medical practices and raise a family. There, he was part of the community, and that became especially important to him after the cancer. As the tumor grew in Ram's spinal column, the family was guided by his priorities, to live and work normally for as long as he could. He chose aggressive surgery, then radiation, but eventually paralysis set in. So the oncologist lays out not eight or nine different options, and we're swimming in all of it. Temozolomide, vincristine. Then started talking about how, you know, you really should think about taking the chemotherapy. Who knows? You could be playing tennis by the end of the summer. I mean, that was crazy. This guy's potentially within weeks to be, of being paralyzed. The oncologist was being totally human and was talking to my dad the way that I have been talking to my patients for 10 years. It was holding out a hope that was not a realistic hope in order to 
get him to take the chemotherapy. Atul says he pushed the oncologist to be more direct about his father's prognosis. We were still in the back of our mind thinking, you know, was there any way to get 10 years out of this anymore? She basically was saying no. And we needed to know that. Medicine sometimes offers a deal. Sacrifice the quality of your time now for the sake of possible time later. But Atul's father was realizing that that time later was running out. He began really thinking hard about what he would be able to do and what he wanted to do in order to um, have as good a life as he could with what time he had. Now on the patient side of the equation alongside his father, Atul was learning another lesson, that you can't always count on the doctor to lead the way. Sometimes the patient has to do it. When Atul met Jeff Shields, he had already gone through three years of treatment for a rare kind of lymphoma. Chemotherapy hadn't worked, and he'd undergone a bone marrow transplant, but now that was failing. He hadn't given up hope, but he was also recognizing that his odds were diminishing, even as his doctors were offering him more treatment options. Well, my experience has been that oncologists, at least my doctors, are basically optimistic and they're always looking for a way to push the disease in, into remission than they are in talking about the longer-term picture of mortality. Oh. I spent time talking to Jeannie, my wife, thinking about, at least for me, I want to make a decision. I don't want to linger. We've had conversations about all, all aspects of what the end of his life might look like. Jeff's wife, Jeannie. And most of all, he says, I want to be at the farm. And, you know, uh, hopefully I'm in a position to make sure that happens. We have an appointment that I hope will result in them saying that the disease is lessened but they might say, no, it's not under control. And then we're going to start having a conversation about mortality. And because I don't think there are so many more choices for Jeff in terms of treatment. Come on in. Hey, Rob. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Rob. Hey, how are we doing? The appointment with Jeff's oncologist, Rob Seufer. Any results on the biopsy? Yes. So uh, the preliminary results do look like rare versus host disease. Uh, and that's not necessarily so surprising. We, we expected that. I first met uh, Mr. Shields about two years ago. At that point, he had a bone marrow transplant. And unfortunately, about a, a year after the transplant, he showed signs that his disease was coming back. In addition to that, he has a complication of transplant where the donor cells are actually attacking his body. And unfortunately, it's wearing him down. It uh, almost goes without saying, but I, we may have to make a, you know, a, a new game plan. Jeff Shields is dying. But unlike many patients, sure he doesn't look stricken when talking about what's ahead. And to feel 
really crummy or spend the last three or four weeks of my life in the hospital is not very appealing to me. I bet not. And um, so when we get to that point, I'll rely on you to make sure we have that conversation. Right. And it's a, it's a group discussion for it sure all is. of us. You know. It's always a hard thing, right? How do you know if they're coming towards the end versus changing the therapy again? Well, I don't think we ever know. Right. But with Jeff, um, he was very, a very thoughtful fellow and thoughtful in the sense that he had considered uh, uh, what might happen down the road. Mm -hmm. And he made it very clear to me that if we thought some therapy might be helpful, might prolong his life with reasonable quality of life, um, he was happy to, to go for it. He also made it very clear that if we thought that things were going to go badly uh, or things looked like they weren't going to work, he didn't want to pursue therapy just for the sake of pursuing therapy. Three weeks later, Jeff is back in the hospital, a chemotherapy tube in his arm, his wife Jeannie at his side. It seems to me there's such a difference in these last few weeks. And we know the lymphoma is growing and, and sort of rampant. What I'm worried about is, could we be coming to a place where it, it's actually killing you and we don't have the opportunity to really talk with the children and the... I mean, where I am in what I consider in hospice, in other words, yeah. end stage, yeah. and we don't have... I, I, I'm going to live for four weeks, and we are thinking, oh, maybe there are three months. Yeah, yeah. I think we should ask that at our next visit. All right. Here. Go into your Benadryl stupor. Two weeks later, at their next visit with Dr. Swifer. Unfortunately, your bilirubin is up, but the other liver function tests are a little down. Um, you know, I, I can't put a particularly good spin on that. Uh, I don't know how negative a spin to put on that, but I can't put a good spin on that. Um, I wanted to clarify something. I yeah. Said, um, I don't want to go back to the hospital. I want to die at home. Yeah. And uh, that's really my goal. Yeah. And so I want you, as my doctor, my good friend, to know that. Yeah. The hospice people will know it. Yes. Jeannie knows it. That's right. my right. desire. Right. It's unusual for a patient and a family to be so clear about their priorities like Jeff Shields was. For most of us, patients and doctors alike, accepting that life can be shorter than we want is very difficult. It's easier to look for what more can be done. Atul says that's especially true for younger patients like Bill Brooks, who was only 46, and the doctors who treat them, like Lakshmi Nayak. It's always a challenge how to say it, that this is not working and I have nothing more. I try to deliver the bad news um, 
in pieces over a period of time, I feel a lot of times they don't absorb all of the information, and that's why you have to keep repeating it. And um, You saw that with Bill Brooks. Yeah. Bill Brooks has returned with his wife, Mary, to see Dr. Nyack. So the MRI, um, there's a little change, unfortunately. Um, there's a small area, um, a new spot. It's not super large, um, but it's there. This is the beginning of the end. I think it's progressing to an extent that we may not be able to do anything to control it. But Bill is still ready to fight. He's heard about a new drug. So what do you think about the AbbVie? I just saw it on the news yesterday. They just got FDA approval for one of their brain tumor medications. That drug, we actually have a trial with that drug. Um, I'll look into it. I'll look to see what the status of that is and see if it makes sense for you to get it. Later, Atul and Dr. Nayak discuss Bill's request. Bill brought up um, this uh, particular drug, but it is experimental. Are you at all worried that he would just have toxicity from the drug without benefit? Yes and no. At this point, I knew that he wasn't going to live for too long without anything, so whether he at least he felt that he could try. Bill only got one dose of the experimental drug because he was getting sicker. The spinal taps were no longer working. The pressure in his head continued to build, and the effects were becoming undeniable. At home in the following weeks, Bill is losing strength. He climbs the stairs slowly, holding the banister with both hands. I'm really declining quickly. I need a lot more help even doing basic. No basic walking and things like that. Well, they're over there too. I, you know, I just don't have the strength in my left side, so if I get leaning one way, just I can't catch myself. Can I flip them? Yeah. With Bill's guidance, Mary sorts his collection of airline and World War II memorabilia. It took me 15 years to collect this. The more valuable and more collectible things are, you know, from back years ago. Is it just this pile? You have more than that. No, I have more. If I die tomorrow, she's not going to know how to dispose of this properly to get the most bang for her buck. Let me just move all these canvas ones. Well, those are going to be the good ones. These are the good ones? The canvas ones, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one's a good one. Oh, I like that one, the ones underneath, too. This one's really nice. Just, I'm just overwhelmed with everything. The mental roller coaster has been the hardest thing to deal with. So it's like, okay, am I dying? Am I not? Can I function? Can I not? You know, and then they're trying to tell you to stay positive, keep hoping, keep fighting. And I'm like, I've been doing that for two and a half years. I'm, I'm at the end of my ropes as far as that goes. I can't take any more bad news. I'd rather go into the meeting and have her just pull a gun out and shoot me than have to listen to her try to be nice while she's giving me bad news. Like I said, I'm, I'm a positive person, but I'm, I'm at the end of my ropes with it best I can. Accepting death comes with incredibly complex emotions. Bill's hopes for more years had turned to weeks. The question became when to let go of treatments 
and to accept what Dr. Nayak and Nurse Sandra Rulin had been conveying about hospice. I think we need to talk about um, what's been going on for the last few days. The fact that you didn't respond to the spinal taps. I wouldn't want to put you through any more spinal taps. There is going to be a time when we're not going to be able to deal with the pressure. With the steroids. We will be able to help with pain. And in making you comfortable. I'm worried that your disease is progressing quickly. We've talked about, you know, hospice before. And I think this is the time where we need to discuss a bit more about it. Well, Mary and I have talked many times. My thought again is I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid of all the suffering that goes beforehand. So we just, we're trying to find out you know, when that is gonna to come to pass just so we can, we can say goodbye to each other. Again, a tool and Dr. Nyack go over a video of the experience in the exam room. It was impressive just being able to be silent for a while. Were you deliberately trying to be silent and let, let it happen? Yeah. I think it's important to pause at the right time. Sometime. It's a lot of information. Ironically, when Dr. Nyack hugs Bill Brooks at the end of their meeting, he tries to comfort her because of her difficult job working with so many terminal patients. Hopefully your last bad news for the day. Two weeks later, Mary and Bill are at home. At this point, it's just making sure he's as comfortable as he can be, um, you know, and that's the most important thing. You know, what's working against him in a way is that he's young and strong. It'll just mean that he'll linger longer. And this is it, yeah. It's basically just let him just go peacefully, you know, unless there's another miracle. Yeah, I'm gonna go check on him. I just wanted to make sure he's okay. Are you okay? I'm right here, sweetie. I just want you to be comfortable. Bill would die two days later. Thank you.
Jeff Shields, the lymphoma patient, is at home in his last days with his wife Jeannie and their visiting grandchildren. As this home time began to unfold, I began to realize how, how difficult it was. Partly because our, our house was not organized or arranged to, to comfortably do this. You know, suddenly you have a hospital bed in the middle of your living room. Ah, then I need you to help me bring my feet up. Don't know that. Here, Malcolm, we're going to help Pop-Up take his slippers off. Can you do that? You want it to be as comfortable and happy a place for him as it can be. And at the same time, it's, you know, it's sort of the elephant in the room. If I talk to you at all about my thoughts on dying and no. is it too hard? Okay. Looking relaxed on a bed by the window, wearing jeans and a baseball cap, Jeff talks with his grandson, Oliver. Let me just tell you this, I'm not afraid of dying. I've had a long and wonderful life. And one of the nice things about being at the farm is that you realize everything dies. There's a cycle of life. The cows die, the trees die, the grass dies, the fish die, and people die. Aren't you sad um, that you're going to be missing out on a lot of things? Well, I will be. And, um, you know, I had hoped to have another 10 or 15 years. But you don't always get what you want. I love you. I love you too. In those last weeks, you know, as his his space narrowed and narrowed to that bed, it grew in terms of the people he was drawing in. I hate to cry, sorry. but, but that's another one of those paradoxes, you know, as, as, your, as your world comes closer and smaller and smaller, it becomes bigger and bigger. And, and, and he was seeing that. The last couple of weeks I've been surrounded by family and friends and uh, it's been terrific. Uh, you know, some of the best days of my life, I must say. But then there's a downward trend that's more rapid than I had expected. I felt great during that time, and my body was in rapid decline. Since then, my mind has been in rapid decline. I get confused. Um, So, but I'm still a happy guy. Those were among the last words Jeff spoke. He died just hours later. 
The problem with medicine is that when we're up against unfixable problems, we're often unready to accept that they are unfixable. But I learned that it matters to people how their stories come to a close. The questions that we ask one another, just as human beings, are important. What are your fears and worries for the future? What are your priorities if time becomes short? What are you willing to sacrifice and what are you not willing to sacrifice? My father answered these questions. He entered hospice four months, as it would turn out, before he died. And he was a person, mostly, during that time. He was not a patient. You know, my dad Skyped with everybody back to his village in India. He had me and my sister come there and be with him. And he remained in control of the priorities that were most important to him. I remember sitting in a chair, reading the newspaper, light coming in the window. My mother and my sister were having a conversation. And then we realized he wasn't breathing. Waited to see if there would just be one more breath. And there wasn't. Ram had made his wishes known right up to the end, including what he wanted to happen after he was gone. He wanted to be cremated um, in the traditional Indian way. And he wanted as ashes spread on the Ganges River. We took his ashes, my sister and my mother and I, uh, to the ancient city of Varanasi, one of the oldest cities in the world. We, with a swami and a boatman, taking us out in a dinghy, and um, it was an amazing thing. I felt he had brought us there and connected himself to all that was important to him. How is dying ever at all acceptable? How is it ever anything except this awful, terrible thing? And the only way it is is because we as human beings live for something bigger than ourselves. Let us know what you think of this podcast by using the hashtag FrontlinePBS on Facebook and Twitter, or email us at frontline at pbs.org.